The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg, sound on with Kevin Sir. On Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. It's the second day of opening arguments in President Donald Trump's impeachment trial. We'll take you through the constitutional grounds for impeachment that House managers are laying out. And we'll speak to Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz, who will argue the constitutional defense for the president. Well, joining me now is Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Politics Editor. So, Anna, I understand that in this long day in the Senate chambers that there's a lot of yawning and moving around and quick breaks and even fidget spinners. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah, it has been a, a long day of uh, of evidence presented by the House managers. This is their second day of presenting their case against President Donald Trump. They began their case yesterday outlining some of the evidence that had been uncovered in the House inquiry. And today they're really focusing in on that abuse of power uh, article that the House passed December 18th. Now, it is a long day. I mean, it's a long day for anyone to sit there and listen to, you know, quotes quotes from the testimony. They've got some video clips uh, sprinkled in, but, you know, people are trying to stay awake. They're going to stand at the back of the chamber and they're just generally trying to stay engaged with the material being presented. Now, in the breaks, when they, the very rare breaks that they do take during the day, sometimes the senators come out and talk about what's been happening. And Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson said that they're making their case over and over again. It's very repetitive. Do a lot of the other senators feel that way? It depends. You know, we've gotten kind of a mixed reaction, most interestingly from Republicans. You know, we have had a few, like Ron Johnson, who you mentioned, Joni Erst of Iowa, who's up for re-election this year. Both of them said that the evidence presented by the House managers has been very repetitive. It's kind of, you know, droning on and on, as they described it. But we did have uh, Lindsey Graham, a close ally of President Trump's, a Republican from South Carolina, who said that he thought Adam Schiff, the lead House manager, was actually doing a good job of laying out the evidence. And Chuck Schumer, the the Senate minority leader, said that this could be the first time that a lot of these senators are engaging with this information really in a kind of systematic way since, you know, there was other Senate business going on during the House trial, you know, this, or excuse me, during the House investigation. And so this could be the first time that they're actually seeing, you know, Donald Trump's conduct regarding Ukraine laid out, the extent to which the White House didn't comply with uh, duly authorized subpoenas from the House of Representatives. So, you know, it not that it's necessarily going to change any minds, but there is kind of a, a an engagement with the material that um, I think the House managers would be gratified to hear. That is really surprising coming from Senator Graham, who has been such a fierce 
ally of the president, particularly in this impeachment trial. Is there any movement? I, I suppose that what this what the House is trying to do here, one of the things that they're trying to do is trying to show the need for witnesses and evidence. Is Are there any cracks there? Well, and you can see how they've kind of sprinkled in that request throughout their presentation. Yesterday, Adam Schiff you know, he continuously would say, you know, this is what happened. This is what this witness said about this conversation. Wouldn't you like to see the memo taken during that conversation? It's up to you. All you have to do is subpoena it. So, you know, kind of continuously making that request for witnesses. And that really is the next question that we're looking at, probably not until after the White House has already made its case. Trump's defense team will present their opening statement probably on Saturday. But we will see after that and after senators have a chance to ask questions whether or not we'll actually get a vote to call additional witnesses to the trial. And is it still dependent on those three or four senators that are mentioned that are in swing states plus Mitt Romney and perhaps Lamar Alexander? Yeah, we need at at least four senators, four Republican senators to join with Democrats on this request for new witnesses because you need a simple majority of Republicans to support a motion to call more evidence. So we've, you know, identified Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Mitt Romney of Utah is one of the three that's often cited as being open to this. And then it gets a little bit trickier to see where that fourth one is going to come from. You know, could be Lamar Alexander who's retiring, could be some institutionalists like Rob Portman who you know want to show that this Senate is taking its job seriously but you know it could be the case that once we get to four we could have seven or eight it's just a question of who's going to be that fourth because that's going to be a person getting a lot of pressure right no one outside. wants to be the fourth no exactly. one wants to be that but there might be more for 58 or 59 could it jump might be together easier. yeah exactly so one thing I'm curious about, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but it seems that some of the House managers, when presenting their arguments, are just reading from from a prepared script, and they stop in time to see them to uh, play a clip here and there. But some of them, like Hakeem Jeffries yesterday, seem to be arguing on their own and from some sense of passion. Are the, is it all written down? Is it all planned out? You can tell that there is a whole lot of preparation that's gone into the House case. I'm sure the committee staffers have been very busy over the past few weeks preparing all of this material. You know, it's pretty buttoned up the way that they do have their prepared statements and then, you know, have those slides to to back up their points and have video clips from the House testimony, uh, witness testimony that we saw last late last year. But there have been a few moments of kind of more genuine presenting the case, presenting a more passionate plea for senators to do their constitutional duty. And that's really where the argument is almost the strongest. You know, it's good to have the evidence to back it up, but it's really when you can see these House managers speaking from their conviction about the institution of Congress, you know, the balance of powers, and just kind of the genius way in which the Constitution is laid out, that it's really the most compelling argument. And you can kind of see senators, like, sit up and pay attention. Now, President Trump before has said that he would have to um, give uh, an object on basis of um, executive privilege if John Bolton was going to testify. Yesterday, he said even more. He said that he was opposed to Bolton testifying because he knows some of my thoughts. 
He knows what I think about leaders and what happens if he reveals that, which is not is not really an argument based on um, executive privilege. It's a different kind of argument. What else has he said about Bolton lately? Well, Jay Sekulow, one of his attorneys on his defense team, said that executive privilege is a real thing, and there's a reason why it's protected, is that you want a chief executive to be able to speak freely and act freely without wondering you know, what's going to be revealed in public later, because you do want the president to have some uh, some ability to, you know, carry out their policy and carry out their priorities when they occupy the office. But Democrats have made the point that executive privilege is not supposed to cover up wrongdoing. So there's no excuse for um, invoking executive privilege if it's just part of a cover-up. Now, that can be a very delicate line to walk, especially when it comes to foreign leaders. You know, if you have President Trump speaking freely about a foreign leader in the confines of his own, you know, small group of advisors, but if that's evidence of wrongdoing, you know, where's the balance between what's protected and what should be brought to light in this trial. So that's something that, you know, if they do call new witnesses, they're going to have to deal with and something that could be even up to the courts to decide. You know, this could end up, you know, if they subpoena other witnesses who decline to participate in the House proceeding, could end up going to court and would have you know, the third branch of government weighing in on how this should play out. That would be interesting. Also interesting whether or not uh, the chief justice could actually make a ruling on that from the bench there, since uh, he would have the authority if, if the senators uh, couldn't make the decision. Thanks so much, Anna. Stick it out there, Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Politics Editor. Coming up on Sound On, we're going to be talking with a legal expert about just how well the Democrats are doing in presenting their case against President Trump. I'm June Grasso. This is Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On. Well, it's the second day of the Senate impeachment trial against President Trump. Democrats are detailing how President Trump pressured Ukraine in a scheme to cheat in the 2020 election and block Congress from investigating. Now, the Democratic team has been calling on the Senate to demand key witnesses and evidence to ensure a fair trial. Here's Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer today. If the American people believe this is not a fair trial which right now they seem to believe, because there are no witnesses and documents, acquittal will have zero value to the president or to the Republicans. Joining me is John Bonifaz, president of Free Speech for People. John, how far are the Democrats going to show that they need witnesses here? Well, I think they've gone pretty far already. I mean, they're laying out this case for what has already been uncovered from the House impeachment inquiry. But what's also clear is that there's a massive cover-up that the Trump White House is engineering to prevent further evidence, further direct evidence showing that Donald Trump was involved in directing this scheme and abusing the power of his office. And, of course, the witnesses that they've already outlined, including John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, and Mick Mulvaney, the current Chief of Staff, are critical to making this case. There is no such thing as a trial 
without witnesses or without documents. That's a kangaroo court. That's a sham trial. And, and I do think that if the United States Senate does not allow for witnesses or documents to be presented at this trial, then history will record this as a sham trial. And, and those who voted to stop those witnesses and to stop those documents will go down as complicit with this cover-up and with the criminal enterprise operating out of the Oval Office. Well, let me ask you this. Just respond to senators who say, or Republicans who say, the you know, it's a foregone conclusion that he's not going to be t- removed from office. They're not going to get the votes that they need anyway. So why go through all the rest of it? Why have witnesses? Why have documents? The conclusion is pretty evident. So we have two responses on that. The first response is that because the Constitution requires that they hold a trial. Uh, it, the senators are required when the impeachment charges are sent from the House that they try the case. And that means that they, like any other trial, allow for witnesses, allow for documents to be presented. But the second response is they have no way of knowing what will happen once these witnesses and these documents are presented in, in in front of the millions of people who are watching, the American public already calling, 70% calling for these witnesses and calling for these documents to come forward. They have no way of knowing, and that's precisely why they are working uh, day and night to stop this from being a real trial, because they know it could unravel for them. They know this cover-up could be exposed, and they don't want that to happen. They have a very scared president sitting in the Oval Office who doesn't want this kind of trial to happen because he knows the consequences when the truth comes out. What's been surprising to me is that some of President Trump's most vocal supporters, Republican supporters like Senator Lindsey Graham and Congressman Matt Gates, have in different ways praised the House Democrats for their presentation. In fact, Gates told Politico that the Democrats made their case as if it were cable news, while the defense team's case looked like, quote, an eighth grade book report. So does it, is the pressure now on the defense team and what can they do to, to make their presentation uh, equal to the Democrats? I don't think they can do anything to make it equal. I mean, the fact is that they don't have anything that is exculpatory. There's nothing that they've been able to present. No evidence has come forward that demonstrates the innocence uh, uh, from these charges by the president. These charges against the president have been well documented. Uh, There's already overwhelming evidence demonstrating that he was engaged in this abuse of power. And so they don't have anything to defend the president with except to try to change the conversation, claim this is a partisan witch hunt, talk about in a misleading or even uh, directly intentionally false way that Republicans were not allowed in on the depositions when we know that's not true, or the president wasn't allowed the opportunity uh, in the House to uh, have his lawyers present when we know that's not true. I mean, there's just so many ways in which the defense side on this uh, looks, frankly, completely unprepared for addressing the mountain of evidence that's being presented. But we'll see what they come up with. My guess is they're going to distract, and they're going to make these false claims, as we've already heard through 
one of their defense counsel, Alan Dershowitz, that you somehow need to prove an actual crime uh, of a, a violation of a federal criminal statute in order to hold a president accountable through the impeachment process. That is not true. There's no basis whatsoever uh, on that argument. These are crimes against the state, abuse of power, abuse of the public trust. That's why we have the impeachment clause in the Constitution. Sometimes it overlaps with actual crimes from the federal criminal code, but there's absolutely no requirement whatsoever that impeachment include an actual proof of a crime under the federal criminal code. So when Alan Dershowitz makes that argument, which he will, we already know that because he's been saying he will, uh, we all have to listen carefully and and then look at the real facts around this and what the framers intended and read what the scholars, the real constitutional scholars are saying about what the impeachment clause requires because that argument is completely specious. Well, we are going to be talking to him next, and uh, we'll talk to him about that, about his argument and how it goes against uh, the weight of the constitutional arguments of, from the scholars that we know. Thank you so much for joining me. That's John Bonifaz. He's president of Free Speech for People. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking to Harvard Law Professor Emeritus Alan Dershowitz. He's going to be arguing the constitutional defense for the president here. And as... Um, John Bonifaz just mentioned his, he has just put forth his argument, and it is contrary to what he said prior uh, in the Clinton impeachment, but he said that uh, since he has been studying this and going back into the history books that he has believes that his position now is the correct position, we'll talk to him about that coming up. I'm June Grosso. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Coming up, Alan Dershowitz. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grasso sitting in for Kevin. Well, the House managers are continuing to lay out their case against President Trump in his Senate impeachment trial. My guest is Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus, who will be presenting the constitutional argument in President Trump's defense. Thanks for joining us, Professor. My pleasure. Thank you. So, so far, do you see any cracks in the House's case against the president? I don't see any case against the president for there to be cracks. The uh, most important thing is whether it charges uh, impeachable offenses and obstruction of Congress and abuse of power simply are not uh, constitutionally permissible uh, offenses uh, to allow impeachment. Virtually every president since Washington has been accused of abusing his power. And uh, presidents obstruct Congress all the time when they uh, invoke executive privilege. So these are not valid uh, allegations uh, for impeachment. So anything else that's going on is just a kind of political show. Professor, the 
overwhelming majority of constitutional law scholars, including your own colleagues, Harvard law professors Lawrence Tribe and Noah Feldman, say your position is just plain wrong and that you don't need a crime. Well, they think it was right if it were Hillary Clinton who were being impeached. In fact, uh, Larry Tribe, uh, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, said categorically that a sitting president cannot be um, indicted or charged with a crime. And then magically, when Donald Trump uh, got elected, he changed his mind and said uh, that uh, he could be indicted for a crime. Uh, Virtually all of the 500 professors who signed that letter would have signed the opposite letter had the shoe been on the other foot. Uh, These are mostly partisan people who will always come down on the side of candidates they support, and they'll make the Constitution fit into the candidates that they support, and they just don't pass what I call the shoe on the other foot test. Some people are saying that about you. In fact, today, the House Judiciary Chair, Jerry Nadler, played a clip of you from 1998 in which you said, quote, if you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of the president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty, you don't need a technical crime. Yeah, well, that's true. You don't need a technical crime. Uh, But I've changed my mind on whether or not abusive conduct can be a criteria for impeachment. Uh, What happened is during the Clinton days, I was on Clinton's side, uh, there was no issue about whether you needed a crime because they charged him with perjury. They charged him with a crime. The only issue was whether it was a high crime. So I hadn't done the research on that issue because it wasn't pressing. It wasn't an issue that was uh, being debated. But um, since this uh, election, when they've been pushing for the impeachment of Trump, who I voted against, uh, I, I did all the research. I've read all the congressional debates. I've read the Federalist Papers. I've read Blackstone, and I've come to a very different conclusion that obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, and uh, abuse of power are precisely <clears throat> the kind of vague, open-ended, standardless criteria or non-criteria that the framers would have rejected. So I've changed my mind the way Larry Tribe changes my the way Nadler changed his mind, Nadler famously said during the Clinton impeachment, you should never impeach anybody unless there's a widespread bipartisan support. Now he's impeaching Trump on a totally partisan basis. Uh, scholars, academics uh, change their views based on research. I did not make a partisan change. I made an academic change. Larry Tribe and Nadler made partisan changes. So I don't think they have the right to call me out on that without acknowledging also Larry Tribe called for the impeachment of Ronald Reagan on abuse of power. I mean, my God, if Ronald Reagan can be uh, impeached on abuse of power, is there any president who couldn't be impeached if the House of Representatives uh, had a majority uh, of the other party uh, than the president? I think it's a very dangerous precedent to set to allow a president to be impeached on abuse of power. I'm going to present a list of presidents who have been accused of abusing their power when I speak on uh, Monday. So... But Professor Tribe, who I have to say I had in constitutional law at Harvard, has said that abuse of power does merit impeachment. You just said He's that. He's just dead wrong. He's just dead wrong. Abuse of power does not uh, merit impeachment, and I will demonstrate that. And I'd like Tribe to answer me on the merits rather than calling me names, which he's proceeded to do now. That's All he's done is hurled epithets, bonkers. I mean, basically what he's doing is calling... Uh, former Justice um, uh, Benjamin Curtis, the man who bravely dissented on Dred Scott and then resigned from the Supreme Court in protest, he's calling him bonkers because he made the argument, an argument that had positive impact on the trial of Andrew Johnson, and uh, made the same argument essentially that 
I'm making. So let tribe call Curtis Bonkers instead of throwing the epithet at me. We will, we will ask Professor Tribe to respond to you. So let me ask you this. Well, ask him, make sure you ask him why he changed his mind on um, whether a president can be charged. And I'm sure he'll tell you he did the research and came to a different conclusion. But then he'll condemn me for doing the same thing in a nonpartisan way. You have to admit, though, that almost every constitutional scholar of today, even the constitutional scholar Jonathan Turley, that the Republicans called right. in the House said that if this isn't an abuse of office, then what is? They said that you. This no, he can didn't be. say that. No, no, no. You yeah, got okay, that that's, just okay. Gerhard said. Gerhard said that. Turley said what Turley said was abuse of power can be a constitution. He had to say it because he had said it in the Clinton case, so he was locked in. So he said that, but he did say that this did not constitute an abuse of power. Uh, you want to know what constitutes an abuse of power? What Richard Nixon did. And Richard Nixon was not impeached. Uh, ultimately, he resigned, but he committed crimes. He committed actual crimes uh, and obstructed justice. Those are impeachable offenses. But um, the, my point is that the vast majority of um, constitutional scholars uh, not only voted for Hillary Clinton, I did too, and supported her and campaigned for her and uh, sent money to her, um, but they are influenced by partisan politics in their constitutional analysis. I firmly believe that if Hillary Clinton had been elected and were impeached on abuse of power because of, I don't know what, Benghazi or any of the things she did uh, or something she did when she was in office, that of the 500 people who signed that letter, I bet you 400 of them would not have signed the letter. Well, and we won't get to test out that theory, but let mm-hmm. me ask you well, another you might question. At some point in the future, you might. If a Democrat gets elected and the Republicans impeach him, as they surely will, um, and the Republicans impeach him, as they surely will, uh, if abuse of power is permitted, then we'll see how many of the professors sign the letter. That's a good, uh, that'll be a good test. Let me ask you this. You didn't sign, I understand, the six-page legal memo filed by the president's team this weekend, and you've distinguished yourself in other ways from the defense team. Why did you agree to defend President Trump? because the constitutional issues are so compelling and because the terrible precedent that would be established if a president could be impeached on the grounds of abuse of power, particularly abuse of power, but also obstruction of Congress. I would not be in this case if not for the constitutional issues. That's why I'm playing the limited role, much as I did in the O.J. Simpson case. I was not a regular part of the legal team. I didn't go to court. I just argued the constitutional and legal issues, the same as I do in many other cases. I come into special counsel on the Constitution. I've taught constitutional criminal procedure for almost half a century. I've written uh, uh, half a dozen books on the subject. I've litigated 100 cases on the Constitution. So I'm an expert on the Constitution, particularly as it relates to matters like impeachment. So I'm coming in to make that argument, but I'm not involved in the day-to-day strategic or tactical decisions or the decisions which witnesses to call or witnesses to call. That's a role I've played in a number of cases, and that's the role I chose to play in this case. Only about a minute here, Professor, but are you getting a lot of uh, negative feedback or blowback? I'm getting only this? negative feedback, name-calling, threats to my family, uh, the most abusive, you know, I'm too old, um, I'm too this, I'm too that. Uh, everything has been an ad hominem. I'd be getting none of these things 
if I had decided to make the argument in favor of impeachment. Obviously, I couldn't make that argument because I don't believe in it. But if I had made that argument, all the same people who are attacking me, condemning me, attacking my credentials, would be praising me. I wish Hillary Clinton had gotten elected. If she had gotten elected, A, I prefer that because I voted for her, but B, my life would be so much easier because I would be defending her against impeachment, and they would have built a statue to me on Martha's Vineyard instead of refusing to even uh, interact with me. So it's all a matter of partisan hypocrisy, and I stand by principles. I stand by the same principles I've stood by since I defended the rights of Richard Nixon, not to be named as an unindicted co-conspirator. I have not changed at all. We we certainly respect your your precedent and your constitutional background. Thanks so much. That's Alan Dershowitz, Harvard Law Professor Emeritus, who will be presenting the constitutional defense of President Trump. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm June Grosso. I'm sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. Well, the Chief Justice right now is sitting at presiding over the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump, but the work of the Supreme Court goes on. Joining me now is Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. So, Greg, uh, before we start on the on the uh, meat of the issue here, so how is the Chief Justice been handling this uh, shuttling back and forth? It's been quite a juggle, June. The the, the first night he was of uh, the trial, he was there until about two o'clock in the morning. Then he had to turn around and hear arguments at the Supreme Court at ten o'clock the next morning. And then two hours after that ended, he was back on the uh, at the Senate. So uh, it's been a lot. Now. Um, I just want your comments about what he said the other night where he chided both sides for not behaving properly. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it came after this uh, back and forth involving uh, Congressman Nadler uh, and uh, the Trump lawyers. And, you know, the the chief justice, you know, is somebody who values decorum an awful lot. He's not in his own home there at the Senate. So I'm sure he thought long and hard before uh, jumping in there. But, uh, you know, the one thing perhaps he hopes he can do is to add some measure of, of order and decorum to the proceedings and and perhaps he brought a little bit of that to it. Yes, I think he did. So now let's talk about some of the cases, what's happening at the Supreme Court while he's also uh, on the bench, so to speak, at uh, the Senate impeachment trial. The Supreme Court took yet another political case, one that could affect the outcome of a tight election. And of course, the presidential election coming up, many people think is going to be tight. Tell us about that case. Yeah, this is a case involving faithless electors, those electors who we think are going to vote for, say, Hillary Clinton because she won that state, and instead they get there and they vote for somebody else like um, uh, like John Kasich the, or Colin Powell. Um, the question for the Supreme Court is whether states can do anything to make sure those electors, uh, when they, they cast their vote for president, vote for the person they're supposed to vote for. Uh, Colorado and Washington both uh, try to penalize electors if they they don't they don't follow the will of the state's voters uh, Colorado uh, had a procedure where still has a procedure where it, uh, removes the voter and and cancels their vote if they try to vote for
vote for somebody else. Washington fined the electors for uh, for casting a faithless vote. And uh, both sides urged the Supreme Court to take up this issue now rather than uh, do it in the middle of a heated presidential campaign. Right now, we don't know who this case, this case might help because we don't know which way a faithless elector might go in a tight election. So the idea is that the court will decide it now, and then we'll know what the rules of the road are if we get to November and, and uh, it actually matters. What has the Supreme Court said previously, if anything, about electors? Uh, so <laughs> they have uh, said that um, that states can uh, bind them, they can make them pledge that they will vote for somebody. The question is whether states can do anything to enforce that pledge. The, uh, the argument is that once uh, this gets into the point where we've had the election, the electors are appointed, uh, and they are originally selected by the party, but then once they're appointed after the election, then the argument goes the states have to stay out of it. They can't do anything about it so that if the electors decide, hey, I want to vote for somebody else, uh, the state uh, can't penalize them. And uh, it, it is now an open question. Uh, there's, you know, part of the argument is what did the framers intend? Originally, uh, the idea was that uh, electors might use some actual judgment rather than just voting for who they're told to vote for. But of course, times have changed, and we now have this broad expectation that if the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate wins the popular vote in a state that the slate of electors will all vote for that person in the Electoral College. And how have the lower courts ruled? Are they split? Are they in agreement? What They, they are split, and that's part of the reason for the Supreme Court uh, taking it up in these these two cases. Uh, the, the court's taking two cases. One involves Colorado, as I mentioned. Uh, Colorado lost at the, the Tenth Circuit. Tenth Circuit said, no, you can't uh, uh, cancel the vote and appoint a new elector. Washington state won at uh, a state court. The, the court said, yes, you can penalize them uh, by, by fining the electors. Uh, and, and that disagreement is uh, no doubt part of the reason the court agreed to take it up and decide it this term. Now, at the same time, they have Obamacare, the issue of Obamacare, and we know that uh, the Fifth Circuit made a ruling. And the states, the Democratic states, have tried to get the Supreme Court to expedite the appeals defending Obamacare. What has the court decided? Well, the court has decided it's not going to expedite it, which means almost certainly they won't hear the appeal this term. It, it was always a long shot for a couple reasons. One, just the, the nature of the calendar. All this was happening really late in the Supreme Court's calendar. Usually uh, they like to have an appeal filed by you know, November or so, uh, and then they can decide in January whether they're going to hear it in, in the current term, which ends in June. Uh, the, the, in this case, the appeals court ruling didn't even come until December. And then you have a second issue, which is that the appeals court ruling kicked the whole case back down to the lower court. Uh, the, the issues... Um, are, are both whether the uh, so-called individual mandate, which really doesn't have any effect anymore, is unconstitutional, and then whether the rest of the statute, all of Obamacare, 
has to be struck down if indeed the individual mandate is now unconstitutional. And that second half of the issue, whether the rest of the statute uh, should be struck down, is something that the Fifth Circuit didn't make a decision on. It kicked it back to the lower court. So that's the kind of thing that makes it really unlikely the Supreme Court is going to want to jump in and decide an issue, especially when that big before the lower courts have even uh, uh, decided uh, that issue in that particular case. So it wasn't that John Roberts didn't want to decide Obamacare for a third time in, in the middle of this contentious... <laughs> well, that, that may also have something to do with it. The court's got a pretty big term. They've got a lot of stuff on their plate. And, and taking up Obamacare, adding that to the mix in this term on a tight time frame in this very volatile, uh, hard-fought political time, you could understand that they might not want to do that. Definitely. So now, are they going to take any more cases? Because as you said, as you keep talking about, the, I mean, they have a, a really chock-full docket, and I mean chock-full of, of really contentious cases. Yeah, they, they probably are not taking any more cases this term. They're, we're kind of at the point where, where if they haven't decided to take it up for this term now, they're, they're going to kick it over until next term. Um, it, 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 you know, as you said, there are a lot, of, a lot of big issues that they've got. You know, probably the biggest one, the ones that is going to get most attention are going to involve uh, subpoenas for the president's financial information from his accountants and from his banks uh, being sought by both House of Representatives, uh, 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 House lawmakers, and by a, f- a prosecutor in New York. We've got an abortion case. We've got a gun case. We've got whether uh, gay people and transgender people are protected under the federal job discrimination laws. Uh, we just had a big religious rights case argued this week. It's, um, it's really, I, I don't, now, I don't know as well as you do, of course, but I don't remember a term that had this many hot-button issues. It, Only about 55 seconds here, Greg. But. Yeah, it, it, it's been quite a while. Of course, we've had some really big terms where they have you know, legalized gay marriage and upheld Obamacare and things like that. But having this many very important issues in an election year, it's been a while since we had a, had a term quite like this. And, of course, they're, they're all going to be highly contentious. Absolutely. Well, during the downtime you have, enjoy the little bit of downtime while the, while the court is in recess. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. I'm June Grasso. I've been sitting in for Kevin Cirilli. And just a reminder that you can listen to download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.